0: Whether we admit it or not, we're all tasked with selling something in our day-to-day roles, which makes the art of persuasion pretty essential to our success. Dan's latest book, To Sell as Human, makes persuasion accessible to mere mortals like you and me. He's even created a masterclass on the subject. Dan has a gift for unraveling patterns in human behavior, which he then transforms into practical guidance that you can apply in your work. His best-selling books, Win, Drive, and A Whole New Mind, which
1: was my personal favorite,
0: are all essential reads.
1: We chat with Dan about creating meaningful connections in a Zoom-dominated workplace and giving teams a sense of purpose given all that is going on in the world today. Dan also dives into the reasons that design literacy is critical for all business leaders who want to remain relevant. We hope you enjoy
0: this mini masterclass with Dan Pink thanks for joining us as we kick off the sixth season of the show. Now, here's Dan. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President, Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy, and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. Dan Pink, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. So Eli and I, we're fans. We've been reading your books for a long time. And I'm curious, it seems like you are systematically trying to unpack how human beings work over the past couple decades of writing and research that you do in terms of like communicating to one another, how we collaborate, how we think creatively. Talk to us a little bit about how you found yourself in this space, curious about this stuff and writing books on these topics?
2: Well, that's a fairly generous account of what I'm doing. Like most people in any kind of quasi-creative profession, I don't have an elaborate 20-year plan. I'm just hopscotching from one thing to the next, trying to make sure my kids have winter coats, trying to make sure that I do work that doesn't embarrass my entire family, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> like most people in any kind of creative arts or in design or anything like that. But, but how did I come to this? Do you want the long version or the short version? What's the juiciest version? There's very little juice in this. It's quite a desiccated hulk here. Uh, so <laughs> I'm gonna do the long version, but I'll try to do it like one of those things like all of Shakespeare's plays in 90 seconds. So I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, the American Midwest. I think that actually has played a bigger role in my life than I would have imagined when I essentially left the American Midwest when I was in my 20s. So I, went, so I grew up in central Ohio, middle-class family, Franklin County, home of the Ohio State Buckeyes. I grew up in the shadow of the Ohio State University, very middle-class, very middle America, and went to college in the Midwest as well. So I think that had a big effect on me, if for no other reason than I am polite honestly, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, it's like, it, it amazes me. I mean, again, I don't want to disparage an entire region of the country, but let me, like a lot of people on the East Coast, <laughs> they just are not that polite. They don't say thank you. You let somebody in in the traffic and they don't like give you a thank you wave. It's just amazing to me. But I actually think that that Midwestern is actually really helpful to me overall. All right. Anyway, so I was always pretty good at school, not because I'm smart, but because I understood that to be good at school, what you had to do is you, you had to give the authority figure what she wanted, the way she wanted it, neatly and on time, and you're going to be golden. So I figure, I cracked that code pretty early. So I went to college. I really liked college. I, I majored in linguistics. I graduated with a degree in linguistics. And instead of becoming, say, an academic or anything like that, because going back to the Midwestern middle-class roots, I felt like, and my parents certainly urged me that I needed some kind of quote unquote profession. So I went to law school and I was able to get into law school because I was a good student. So I went to law school, hated it, not hated it, mostly hated it, decided early on that there was no way in God's green earth I would ever be a lawyer. And so I graduated from law school, one of three unemployed people in my graduating class in law school. At the time, I was very keenly interested in politics. And so I started working in politics. I started working on campaigns. And then in a really kind of half-assed way, fell into speech writing. And became a speechwriter for a few years. And then I realized like in my early 30s or something like that, that I actually didn't want to work the rest of my life in politics. Story's going way longer than it should, but let me soldier on. So I'm working in politics and I realized that I don't want to spend the rest of my life working in politics. And then I noticed something and here there's actually a point to this long and winding story is that from the time I was really in high school, through college, through law school, even in through like working at these pretty demanding jobs in politics, working. I mean, I worked for worked in the White House. I worked for a cabinet official, you know, like pretty demanding jobs. I was always, quote unquote, writing on the side. So I would be doing like in law school, I wrote a lot of op-eds for a local newspaper. And I wrote some feature magazine articles while I was in law school. I wrote more like for stuff outside of law school than actually within law school. Uh, When I was in college, believe it or not, for whatever weird reason, I won a short story competition. But I always, this is sort of this thing I did on the side. Eventually, I discovered that what I was doing on the side was what I should be doing for real, that deep down, I was a writer, not a speech writer, but a writer. But I never really thought about that. I never had any great desire to become a writer. I never would have said, oh, my God, my life's dream is to become a writer. I never would have said, oh, my God, writing is my passion or anything like that. It's just what I did. And it took me like three decades on this planet to figure out that that is what I did. And I think that's the, if there's any kind of lesson that your listeners can extract from this, it is this, that is pay attention to what you do. I mean, sure, pay attention to how you feel to some extent, you know? I mean, that's I think that there's useful signals in that, but like, what do you do? And it turned out that I wrote and that was really the path into it. And what I was most interested in, Aaron, to your point was these crazy people called human beings. They're nuts. They're really interesting. And it turned out that there was this thing that you could do where you could go around and ask people questions that you were curious about and they would talk to you and then you could kind of write what they said and then they would put your name on it and pay you. And I was like that's a pretty good gig. That's really how I got into it. You know that that I discovered overall I discovered fairly late. I don't know, not, not late in any meaningful sense, but later than we're sort of acculturated to believe that this is what I was kind of cut out to do. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years, which is writing. And again, not with any grand plan, but just like stuff that I'm curious about. And if you're interested in what makes people tick, the domain in which you can really understand what makes people tick is work. We spend over half of our waking hours at work it reveals everything it reveals rivalries it reveals how we get along with others it reveals how we don't get along with others it reveals what our aspirations are it reveals how we get good at stuff it reveals how we make a contribution to the world it reveals the biases we have toward each other and that's what it was
1: yeah and i think you just did a very good summary of one of the ideas that that first made me aware of you which was in your book drive this idea of mastery autonomy and purpose which i think is this really framework to think about what motivates us for work. And I'm curious if you can think of ways right now when there's so many challenges in the world and people are are still thinking about reasons, about purpose, giving purpose to their work and having mission-driven work. How do you kind of think about that? What are some of the things that people can do in their career if they aren't feeling that sense of purpose to find it?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, it's, it's really important. So what we know from a lot of the research is that purpose is a motivator and that is not a kind of ooey gooey sentiment. There is a rich body of research showing that purpose helps people do better at stuff, okay? But here's the thing, and I, and I discovered this. So I wrote a book, as you mentioned, called Drive. that talks about purpose. There's a chapter in there about purpose, and I sort of didn't get it right, and it bugs me, so let me try to get it right on your show here. I think that purpose is not one thing, it's two things. What we typically think about when we think about purpose are, and in in some ways, Eli, embedded in your question, is this idea of doing something big and transcendent. I am solving the climate crisis. I am in a mission-driven organization. We are feeding the hungry. We are building homes for people who would otherwise not have homes. We are coming up with life-saving drugs, all right? Uh, And I think a lot of times when we think about purpose as a motivator, we think about that. And the evidence is overwhelming, that is a huge motivator. However, exactly as you say, that kind of purpose is not always at our fingertips. That kind of purpose is actually in in some ways often hard to access, and it's often hard to access in a regular way. But I think there's another kind of purpose, all right? If, If the first kind of purpose that I'm talking about is making a difference, I think there's another kind of purpose out there, and that purpose is making a contribution. And I think those two things are, I think those are different ideas. It's a different kind of purpose. And the way I think about it, overly simplified perhaps, is this. That first purpose, big transcendent, capital P purpose. That other kind of purpose, which I'm about to talk about, small p purpose. And that is simply, are you making contribution? Are you helping a teammate get a project out the door? Have you helped a client or a customer solve its problem? is there one consumer out there whose life is a tiny little bit better because of what you have? I mean, I use pencils. We're on Zoom right now. We can see each other. Viewers, unfortunately, you're missing the gorgeous glimpse of me in a running T-shirt. But <laughs> what I'm showing right now is a, is a little mini pencil sharpener that works really well. Okay, so whoever made this pencil sharpener, like they actually contributed to my life. Is this little pencil sharpener feeding the hungry? No. Is it solving the climate crisis? No. Is it cleaning off the grimy gears of American democracy? No, but it brought a little bit of pleasure and utility to my own life. And so if we think about capital P purpose and small p purpose, if you can't access that capital P purpose, go to that small p purpose, which is, is there someone you helped? I mean, literally ask yourself this question. Is there someone whom you helped out today? And that could be a teammate. That could be someone in your family. That could be simply getting through a day's work and earning a day's pay and feeding your family. That's good, too. And so don't think of purpose as this totally daunting thing all the time. If you have it, go for it. And if you connect what you're doing day to day with something big and transcendent, great. And I think a lot of us can and we can we can do that. But if you can't do it today, go for that small p purpose. What kind of contribution did you make today? And if you really stop and think about it, you probably did make a contribution and you can even establish it as a ritual. You can ask yourself at the end of a day, what is one contribution I made today? And if if you force yourself to think about it, it can be really valuable. I'll give you an example from my own life today, literally. So I'm looking at the stuff I've done today. So I'm working on a book, but I'm really not working on a book because I'm banging my head against the table and refusing to write and all those kinds of things. So the end of every day is frustrating. But today I volunteered at my kid's school to do a mock college interview with a student, And I feel like I might've helped her a little bit. All right, that's good. That's good. I didn't solve the climate crisis. I didn't feed the hungry, but hey, that's not bad. That'll get me through tomorrow.
0: How do leaders think about this? Maybe you've seen in conversations with other leaders, just like, so thinking about this big vision, mission-driven work versus just like helping people see the purpose of their work to keep that motivation up within a team Are there ways that you've seen organizations frame that to keep the team moving forward in a positive direction?
2: Yes, I'll give you what I think is the single best tip on that, single best practice on that, and one that I've been trying to use myself. And just try it out for one week. Whenever you're listening to this, this week, if you're a leader, have two fewer conversations about how and two more about why, as Simple-minded as that sounds, that's actually really effective. And I think what leaders will find, particularly leaders in technical fields, is that they have a huge number of how conversations. So when somebody's struggling or when they're trying to get people to do stuff, here's how you write that patch. Here's how you do that sales presentation. Here's how you talk to that customer. And that's important. I don't want to diminish that. But again, if we go back to the science, we know that The purpose, whether it's capital P or small p, is a pretty important motivator. So tell people why. And so instead of saying, you know, here's how you make that sales presentation, you say, okay, here's why we're making that sales presentation. And I think what people will discover is that they have a lot of how conversations. So interrupt yourself. So when you're about to say, here's how, how, how," stop yourself, turn it into a why conversation. And I think that practice alone, something I've tried to do myself, can be really useful, that's one thing. Another thing is to talk like a human being in all of your materials whether it's in person or whether it's in your documents. Like I see things like describe like what companies do or what their mission is or what their purpose is. And it's freaking gobbledygook. All right. They are not words that human beings use when they go out for a walk with their spouse. They're not words people use when they're sitting around the table with some friends having a pizza. So just talk like a human being, for God's sake. And I think people can see that. So just like be an authentic human being who talks like a real human being. I'll give you an example of that. I mean, from Jason Freed, the thing that drives me nuts, okay? Among the things that drive me nuts is it gives you an example of what companies would say and even what leaders would say, but human beings would never say. All right, so let's say that I have an internet provider here in Washington, D.C., okay? Because of their screw up, the internet connection to my house was, Disrupted for six hours. Okay. What do they say in those circumstances? They say, and I'll give you the words. All right. We know these words. We can recite it like we're at church. We regret any inconvenience this might've caused you. Now, no one would say that to another human being in a real setting, right? Suppose that I'm walking down the street masked here in Washington, D.C. Eli is walking down the street masked here in Washington, D.C. I'm carrying a cup of coffee. And for whatever reason, because I'm not particularly graceful, as I walk past Eli, I stumble a bit. And as I stumble, I let go of the coffee and it spills all over Eli. What am I going to say? I regret any inconvenience this might have caused you. I would never say that. What would I say? I mean, I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not joking. This is actually not a joke. Uh, I mean, seriously. oh my god,
0: I'm so sorry.
1: Right? Exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly. You would say, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry." Like, what can I? You know, what can I? And, and what happens is, is that you have this kind of very performed corporate language that I think is not to be Marxist about this, but I think is alienating to customers and especially to the people who work there. And so, if you as a leader can just talk the way you talk to another person. I think that goes along, you know, like like instead of saying, wow, we really optimized our relationship with our stakeholders today. Like, you know, it's like, oh man, that customer is gonna be psyched that they have our product. That client over there, we really solved their problem. They're gonna be better off. And I'm proud of you guys for doing that. That's what you say.
1: Amen, love it. Dan, you just released a masterclass on persuasion. I'm violating all of its principles here in this interview. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. That's good. good. And in one of the segments, you talk about group dynamics and reading a room and understanding group dynamics. And I'm curious, you know, in our new kind of COVID remote Zoom world, how do we do that? How do we read a room? How do we create meaningful connections? Yeah, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. And I think
2: one of the solutions there or one of the realities there is to... I mean, I hate to say this, but to sort of lower our expectations a little bit, you know, you have to realize human beings, our brains evolved during a certain time, a time when the only people who could hear your voice were people who were within your range of sound, right? Our brains are wired to talk to people face-to-face and every kind of new medium has gains in efficiency, it has losses in fidelity, in texture, and those kinds of cues. So in these kinds of circumstances, I, like I can look at your face right now, Eli, all right? And it's like, now, it's weird. Even what's happening with us right now on Zoom is weird, okay, because in order for me to look at you, like as I would at person, all right, I'm not looking into the camera, which means it looks like I'm not looking at you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just kind of weird. So, so I think part of it is don't read too much negativity into these interactions. Don't say, oh my God, don't immediately assume that person is bored, that person isn't interested, that person is disengaged because you're missing in this kind of medium so, so, so many of these cues. So I think that's one takeaway is I think people have a tendency to catastrophize some of these circumstances where it's like, oh my God, nobody was listening. They weren't reacting, you know? And it's like, okay, it's probably not as bad as you think. The other thing is to be a little bit more of a giver in terms of how you interact. So one of the things that I try to do I'm on a Zoom call is actually to try to be present and look into the camera as I'm looking right now, as weird as it is for me to be staring into this little eye, I know that your experience is going to be better. If you can see me actually talking directly at you, rather than staring off into space over here. So even emails are very impoverished, and text is a very impoverished medium, right? High in efficiency, low in fidelity, and that's why people have to actually backfill some of the emotional signals with emoticons, you know, with little smileys. Like oh, like if I say to something to you in person, like you can tell whether I'm being sarcastic, whether I'm kidding, whether I'm being friendly, whether I'm being an ass, but you know, an email, for instance, that's stripped away. And so you have to actually backfill to supply that. So assume positive intent on others. Don't catastrophize. And then also be as generous as you can in your own interactions.
0: What's the one mistake that people make the most when they're trying to get a point across, especially in a professional context where You've got an idea, and it feels like this could be big. This is an important idea. And I need to present it to some people of influence and power. And I present it, and it did not go the way I had anticipated What's the one thing that most commonly leads to that falling off the cliff moment in the, the conference room? <laughs> of which I've had many. Uh,
1: no, that's a, that's <laughs> a great too. question.
2: That's a that's a that's a great question. I, I think it's often multiple factors. But if I had a point to one, that might be if we were to like gather all everybody, describe your falling off a cliff moment and what went wrong, and then we were to, you know, accumulate the answers and so forth. I think we would have a plurality, in is one thing, not a majority, but a plurality, which would be a failure to understand the issue from the other side's perspective. That could be everything from assuming they knew things that they actually didn't know. So it was actually a failure of understanding because you assumed that they knew what you knew. So there's a great, there's a, there's a phenomenon, as you're probably familiar with, called the curse of knowledge, where if we know something, we just assume other people know it. And that's often not the case, amazingly enough. So failures of of that, failures of understanding what their interests are, like what's in it for them. Well, why is it advantageous to them? This is common in job interviews where the job interviewee will talk about how great the job, like this would be so good for me. I'm going to learn so much. I'm going to advance so fast. And it's like, well, that's nice, but. You're here to do a job and solve the problems for me like what do you, you know it's failures of attunement it's not stopping and thinking seriously what does the other person know what does the other person care about what are the other person's thoughts what are the other person's interests and really really thinking that through
1: one other thing that maybe was in your initial approach that you believe you talked about in your master class as i pitch it again here for you uh, is this idea that a successful pitch invites the audience in as a collaborator And why is that important and how do you go about doing that?
2: This is some research done at UC Davis and Stanford where they looked at Hollywood pitch meetings and found, you know, what were the successful pitches and what weren't. And it turned out the most important factor in pitches was that successful pitches invited the other side in as a collaborator. So the main thing is to think of pitching as a collaborative exercise. And Aaron mentioned like falling off the cliff moments. I've messed this up so many times until I realized this because I always looked at a pitch as this almost like a performance where you do a little song and dance, you know, and you do your tap dance and you take off your top hat and your cane and you know, that's not what the evidence says. The evidence says that people want to be participants. They want to be collaborators. And so the response you want in a pitch is certainly not, that's stupid, that'll never work. That's usually not a good sign, amazingly enough. But you, you also don't want is, oh my God, that's amazing. What you want is, huh, that's really cool. That's really interesting. Have you thought about such and such? What if we did such and such? Then you're off to the races because you fostered that collaboration. And that, has that for me, truly has fundamentally changed the way that I pitch. It's like I don't say, like, what's the best, most captivating America's Got Talent performance I can deliver? But what's the best way to invite them in as collaborators?
1: Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit crashplan.com designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes and they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities. Buy as many user licenses as you need and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash designbetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Backup better with Crash Plan.
0: Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T DESK.COM to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, He said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Design Better today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Design Better. Dan, I want to rewind to that conversation around, you know, living in a pandemic world and how work life is different. It's it's different now, but it's probably always going to be different because of our different relationship with tools and collaboration and so forth. And I remember reading back in two thousand and five when a whole new mind came out, kind of changed my perspective on how the world might evolve. And you talked about. Very analytical thinking being outsourced more and creativity, those creative ideation processes would become the real value to the economy, to the way companies work, to the way teams work. Here we are 15 years later in a pandemic. And in many ways, it feels like it kind of plays into some of your early theories that now that we are more global and connected and everything is sort of decentralized. Maybe that's more possible, but I'm curious, how do you think about those ideas that came out back in 2005, today in 2020?
2: Let me take one beat and just offer up for the tens of millions of your listeners who have no idea what that book is, what the idea in that book is. So that book, it makes an argument that, uh, sort of using the structure of your brain as a metaphor for the world of work. In our brains, we have a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere. There's been a lot of stupid stuff written about that topic, so I'm hesitant to go too far on this. But basically metaphorically it used to be that if you had sort of left brain-ish skills logical linear sequential analytic reasoning sat spreadsheet skills think of it that way okay. you would be totally solid in white-collar work and my argument is that today those sat spreadsheet skills are absolutely necessary and this is really really important they're absolutely necessary if you don't have them you're toast but they're no longer sufficient and its ability is more characteristic of the right hemisphere of the brain artistry empathy inventiveness big picture thinking, composition, that are the ones that are the most important. And the reason is, it's a very hard-headed reason, those left-brain logical analytic skills are easy to outsource and easy to automate. And so the kinds of things that happen to routine mass production work is happening to routine white-collar work and putting a premium on a different set of skills. So I think that argument is generally, remains fairly sound. In the last 15 years, I think the outsourcing of white collar work has been a little bit more variable. It's less swift. The automation of certain kinds of white collar work is ferocious. Everything from you know TurboTax doing the things that accountants can do, to even things like something as, as mundane as Calendly. People would sometimes have assistance. Who And one of the things there's a would do is schedule stuff. And now there's AI schedulers, there's Calendly and things like that. You know, again, it's kind of amazing. It's kind of crazy because like that book, 2005, would have been before smartphones, before social media and before, you know, everyone and their brother was talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning. And so I think there's a single big takeaway here, especially if you think about the future of labor markets in the United States, it's that people are going to have to do stuff that augments machine intelligence rather than competes with it.
0: How do you think design fits into that view of the world?
2: I wrote about this 15 years ago. As you know, I think that design is fundamental. I think design has become a fundamental business literacy, period. I just don't know how you can be in any kind of business without being literate in design because design decisions are embedded in everything. I mean, everything from how organizations function to your clients' and customers' use of your products, services, and experiences, that for a long time, you could be a business leader and be completely design illiterate. I think that if you are design illiterate today as a business leader, you're in a world of hurt. You don't have to be a great designer, but you have to be design literate. I mean, I think it's this kind of thing. It's like if you had a corporate leader who didn't know anything about finance, who didn't know what a balance sheet was, you know, who didn't know, oh, what's a, P- well, a P&L statement? Why is that important? Every business leader doesn't have to be a great accountant or corporate finance person, but you have to be literate in that stuff. And I think design has become that way. I think on that one, I'm preaching to the saved with you guys.
1: <laughs> absolutely, yep. absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah we we're definitely biased in that direction. <laughs> yeah,
2: but I mean, I think that you're bi- the bias is informed by your own experience and by the realities of the marketplace. And that's a pretty big change if you go back like 20 years ago, you know? And here's the other thing, like 20 years ago or whenever, let's go way back to the early days of a magazine called Fast Company that I was writing about from its early inception. And I was writing about design then. And people, whoa, hey, whoo, that's a little wacky. Like you have the conversation where you and I, three capitalists, are on a call saying, yeah, design is a fundamental business literacy. I think 20 years ago, other people would have said, whoa, these guys are a little bit wackadoodle. You know, it's like, whoa, that's a little woo-woo for me. Whoa, these are like the artsy-fartsies. Now, I don't think you get any pushback. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe a little residual, but I think a lot of business leaders are like, yeah, no, I think that's right. So what do I do?
0: And right now, as we're having this conversation, Airbnb is going public and already doubled in the market from where they entered. So it's a very design-focused company.
2: Well, I mean, back in the day, I got a lot of invitations to art and design colleges because I wrote that the MFA is the new MBA. And I should point out that the founders of Airbnb are graduates of, not of MIT, not of Harvard Business School, not of Stanford, not of Northwestern but of the Rhode Island School of Design. You got it. And now they're like gazillion billionaires or whatever they are. That's right. These days. Yeah. <laughs> I in fact have, I'm fans of this. I, I in fact have, they, they had a, a promotion where they were raising money. This is like a long time ago where they were selling cereal. Yeah. You know about this, so they had this, it's 2008. Here, hang on. Uh, they have, um, hang on for one sec. In the 2008 election, they put out these, one cereal is called Captain McCain. And the other one was Obama O's. And they had a they had a limited edition series Airbnb did where they produced 500 of these things. So this is you can see it's like a, a lithograph or something like that. It's like this is number 149 of 500. Coincidentally, I mean, in the annals of bad decisions, Joe Gebbio, who was one of the founders of Airbnb, was a student at Rhode Island School of Design and he read Whole New Mind and he emailed me all this time ago and he said, oh, I got this idea for this thing I'm starting. That's the worst idea I'd ever, heard. yeah, I'm like, that, I think that's the worst. You're gonna, you want people to stay in, a, like, complete strangers to come and stay in your house? No one's ever going to do that. But they had this thing, which I thought was a pretty cool art project, you know, and I said, okay, I'll buy these. So, of course, I have no equity in Airbnb, but I have two boxes of cereal from them. And you see how old it is. They actually have you see that there you can see it they're even using their original name which is you see that air bed and breakfast yeah so i have these on my shelves as a reminder of my
1: bad (laughs) investing decisions (laughs) (laughs) so one of the reasons or at least one hypothesis for why design wasn't really seen as a business advantage until recently was i think that it, it was sort of seen as something that you do at the end you make something pretty design is about that but what it's really about is understanding what people and and customers want. And I think that has a lot of ties to sales. And in your book, To Sell is Human, you talk about how you have to be attuned to the customer. What are some of the things that designers can learn from people who are good at sales or, or vice versa?
2: I think that the intersection of that is a skill that we have, in, and it connects to a lot of stuff we've been talking about, is the skill of problem finding, which is at the heart of sort of traditional design thinking. Design thinking has at its, at its start need finding. Okay, What are the actual needs, right? And that happens at the beginning, exactly as you say, Eli, it doesn't happen at the end. I think that the conventional view, I hope that it's eroding, is that design is simply you lacquer on at the end. You spiff it up at the end to make it more visually appealing, which is nonsense. So I think what, what unites it is the skill of problem finding. The way that connects to sales is that problem solving, because of AI, because of these advances in automation, problem solving is becoming a commodity. If I know exactly what problem I'm trying to solve, I can probably figure out the answer quickly. So someone coming in and solving an existing, clearly stated problem, isn't that valuable to me? Someone who comes to me and says, you're wrong about your problem. You're missing this problem. There's a hidden problem. There's a problem down the road. That ends up being far more valuable, far harder to automate, far harder to outsource. And there's some great research, a classic research from uh, the University of Chicago in the... 1960s, I think, late 1960s, me and Getzels, showing that artists who approached their work as problem finders rather than problem solvers were more successful artists.
0: Dan, let's talk a little bit about the rhythms of a day and how we solve problems better at different times. Your book, win kind of deconstructs that. And as I was going through that book, I couldn't help but just see, like you've laid out some patterns here that might change the way that teams function entirely. Like when we have standups, you know, these tight reviews of like status and what's going on and bottlenecks, where we might help each other. Where we have design reviews, where we've been designing something and we're looking at it critically and debating, and maybe bringing in partners from engineering and so forth. Might be doing committee work or interviewing people that we want to hire for the team. How should we be thinking about how to time those types of activities throughout our workdays?
2: Yeah, it's complicated. I wish there was a single answer to that, but it's a little bit complicated. But we can, we can have some, I mean, no joke, we can have some design principles behind this. And the design principles are relatively straightforward. It begins with what's known as a chronotype, which is people's innate biological propensity. Do you wake up early and go to sleep early? Do you wake up late and go to sleep late? Are you somewhere in between? And what we know is about 15% of the population naturally wakes up early, goes to sleep early. About 20% of the population wakes up late and goes to sleep late, and about two-thirds of us are in the middle. But those of us in the middle, we sort of tilt a little bit more toward that morning side. So one way to think about this is, it's overly simplified, but it's useful as a design principle, is are you more of a lark or more of an owl? And so 80% of us are a little bit more toward the lark side, 20% of us are hardcore owls. And that makes a big difference because here's what we know. All of us seem to move through the day more or less in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery. 80% of us, the majority of us, move through the day in that order. Peak early in the day, trough in the middle of the day, recovery later in the day. And our problem solving, our, our cognitive abilities vary considerably based on what we're doing and what time of day it is. So during that peak, we're better at analytic work, work that requires heads down, focus, and attention. That's 80% of us. 20% of us, if you're a night owl, you're do better at that analytic work later in the day and at night. Aaron, to your question here, so if you have a team that's mostly large, which is statistically likely since 80% of us are that way, and let's say you're doing a review of a product and looking, say, for defects, okay, analytical, You know, you really want to be locked in. I think in general, do that kind of stuff early in the day. 80% of us are better at analytic work early in the day. So I think that would be the kind of thing that you might want to tilt more toward the early part of the day. Middle of the day, early to mid-afternoon, terrible time of day. We joke about it, it's a terrible time of day. Huge drops in performance. And so during that Bermuda Triangle of the day, you should be doing your administrative work, like answering your routine emails, filling out your expense reports. Now, here's where I think it gets interesting for 80% of us. Late in the day, something interesting happens. So around the time that we're approaching right now, because I'm talking to you, at the moment I'm talking to you, it's 421 on the U.S. East Coast. And so what typically happens with 80% of us around this time of day, late afternoon, early evening, our mood goes up, but our analytic powers don't necessarily. And that makes it a good time for things that require some kind of mental looseness. So let's, let's say brainstorming. So you have you have high mood, low vigilance, which actually gives people some mental looseness. So in that case, you might want to do your brainstorming late in the day or early in the evening when people are less vigilant. And that's a plus rather than a minus. Now, I wouldn't do that review for defects this time of day. And I certainly wouldn't do it in the early to mid-afternoon because just as I wouldn't go to the hospital or have surgery in the afternoon of any kind, I will not willingly go to a hospital or into any kind of elective surgery after noon, period. No way. I wouldn't let anybody in my family do that either because the numbers on the performance in hospitals outside of the morning hours are terrifying. So the mistake that you can make is to say, let's go back to Aaron's example. You have a meeting about looking for defects and then a meeting about brainstorming new ideas. You do the brainstorming meeting in the morning with a lot of morning people. They're gonna be hyper vigilant. They're gonna say, that's a terrible idea. That'll never work. Let me show you the flaw in that. It doesn't go anywhere. You go to the defect meeting in the afternoon with people who are more vigilant in the morning, but a little bit looser in the afternoon. Yeah, that looks pretty messed up, but I don't know, maybe it'll, you know, maybe the plane <laughs> won't crash, you know? And so the bigger point here is that we don't take into account how much our, our cognitive abilities change in the course of a day and how they change in fairly predictable ways.
1: So one last question to wrap things up for you. I know you You do a lot of writing, but I'm assuming you also do a lot of reading. Is there anything right now you're reading that that you're finding particularly inspiring or anything else creative that you're finding inspiring?
2: Yeah, I, I think one of the keys is to read fairly widely. There's just a lot of stuff that I really like. There's so many good books out there. One of my favorites recently was a book called The Biggest Bluff by Maria Konnikova, who was a social psychology graduate student turned journalist who decided to learn how to play poker so she could enter poker tournaments for real money, including the World Series of Poker, and ended up doing pretty well. First of all, it's a great story. Second of all, it's a great meditation on something we don't think enough about in our lives, which is luck. We have all of these self-serving biases where if we achieve anything, it's because of our hard work and brilliance. If other people achieve anything, it's because they got lucky. And we don't factor in enough about the role of luck in our lives. And so this is a really great look at the balance between skill and luck. Another book I've really liked lately was a book called Overground Railroad by Candace e. Taylor. And this is a book about the Green Book, which was a publication in the mid-20th century that was like a guide for African-American travelers because there were towns in which they risked their lives if they were there after sundown. There were plenty, I mean, restaurants all over the place, especially in the South, that wouldn't take And so this is the guys like, where can you go safely? What are the black owned businesses here? And so during this period from the mid thirties to the mid sixties, this was an essential publication for black families who like white families wanted to get in the car and go on a road trip or go, you know, on a family vacation. This book tells a story of that. It shows a lot of photographs and and artifacts. It's just, it's a really ingenious story about entrepreneurship and social change and everything like that. So I love that. I'll give you one more. I think it's a book for the designers would like to read. It's a work of fiction called uh, Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu. I never heard of it until it won a National Book Award, and I ended up reading it because of that. And it is a really inventive book. It's written kind of sort of in the form of a screenplay, but kind of sort of not. So it challenges the form of what a book is. And it is hilariously funny, but also like a really trenchant piece of social commentary about bias in the United States against people of Asian descent and stereotyping of people of Asian descent, but done in such a sly and hilarious and inventive way, I can see like aspiring fiction writers looking at that book and saying, whoa, you can do a book that way? <laughs> for designers, I think it'd be really, it's a great spark to their thinking. I think all three of those books are really, really useful for designers. What are you thinking about next, Dan. I'm trying to write a book, and this book is about regret and why actually regret is better for us than we think. And so to write it, I'm looking at some of the research on regret, but I've also set up something online called the World Regret Survey, where we have collected regrets from right now over 11,000 people around the world who are telling us what they regret. And I'm doing some analysis of, it's actually home-minded in that I'm doing some amount of actually serious not serious, but, but real data analysis to find out what do people actually regret? Are there differences in what men regret and what women regret? What people of different races regret, people of different education levels regret? Are people more likely to regret things they did or things they didn't do, actions or inactions? I'm trying to correct the code of what people regret on the theory that all of us have regrets. This idea of no regrets is total bullshit. Regrets make us human and regrets make us better. And if you can understand what regret is, how it works, And if you understand the sorts of things people regret, you have the the tools and the equipment to lead a better life.
0: Fantastic. Dan Pink, thank you for joining us on the Design Better podcast. A pleasure.